Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. This podcast is one guy reading through the Library of America collection about 100 pages at a time. In this episode, I'll continue my study of Herman Melville's impressive failure, Marty. In the earlier parts of the novel, the hero, a regular sailor, finds himself in love with Ela. They then travel into a mythological Polynesian land called Marty. In an island called Odo, Ela vanishes, and Taji, the narrator, vows to find her. With the philosopher, a demigod king, a historian, and a poet, he sets off. After exploring several islands, Taji's last friends from the previous world decide to stay behind. Taji's last friends from the previous world decide to stay behind on a rather jolly island called Mondinaldo. During these adventures, Taji is followed by the handmaidens of a queen, Hosha, who is trying to seduce Taji from his quest for the pure Ela. He is also followed by the sons of a priest who are sworn to revenge. In the third quarter of the novel, the third quarter of the novel opens with the party landing in the island of Marama. This is an island totally devoted to religion. Instead of a king, which is the typical pattern, they meet a blind man who leads pilgrimages on of, of religious expeditions in the island but only if they pay. The island seems to be very unequal, with religion taking most of the wealth. Just a second, we have a little passage on this. Um, in describing the dwellings uh, on this island, Melville writes, it was large and lofty. Nearby, however, there were many miserable hovels with squalid inmates, but the old man's retreat was exceedingly comfortable, especially abounding in mats for lounging. His rafters were bowed down by calabashes of good cheer. And this is the man who comes to lead them on the pilgrimage on the pilgrimage is a man named Pani. The critique of religion in this section is pretty clear. The leader is a blind man who takes the wealth of society, living in comfort while most people surrounding him are poor. The setting seems to share many characteristics with medieval Europe. The island does not have a king, it has a pontiff, Hivo. Hivoiti, the 1848th. Yeah, I gotta practice these pronunciations before I try it sometimes. Um, Hivoiti, the 848th. Uh, I mean, it's the 848th person of that name ruling. Um, this is a joke that seems to be at the expense of the long line of popes. And here's what he says about this leader. Besides, was he not accounted a great god in the land, supreme, having powers of life and death, essaying the de deposition of kings and dwelling in moody state all by himself in the goodliest island of Mardi? Through here, be it said, that his assumptions of temporal supremacy were but seldom made good by express in, in interference with the secular concerns of the neighboring monarchs, who by force of arms were too apt to argue against his claims to authority. However, in theory, they bowed to it. And now for the genealogy of Hivohiti, the 847th Hivohitis were alleged to have gone before him. He came in the right line from the divine Hivohiti I, the original grantee of the empire of men's souls and the first swear of a crozier. Blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, it's, it's the Pope. This is supposed to be a, a symbol for the Pope. They visit a religious site, the great Morari, and here the guide is revealed to be in great personal doubt about, his, about the truth of his own faith. 
So that's kind of a fun aside there, where they get uh, to expose the great religious, this great, this religious leader as as basically a fraud. Um, they visit other sites on the island, eventually seeing the great temple of Oro. Now, Oro is the Mardian equivalent of God, and Alma is then their vision of Christ. Mohi, the historian that's accompanying our companions, tries to give a historical account of Alma, which Babalanja rejects because of the hypocrisy evident, of, evident in the island of, of Marma. Babalanja later tells the story of the blind men identifying a tree, and it's kind of like the story of the blind men and the elephant, right, where they all touch different parts of the elephant, but all described a little bit differently. This is a slightly different uh, way of telling the story in which all the different blind men grab a part of the tree and they all grab a different branch and they're all spread out in a region. So it seems they're not holding the same thing, but they all claim to be holding onto the same thing. And this is a bit of a metaphor uh, for religious diversity that, you know, I guess the, the way some people say this nowadays is, you know, all, all paths lead to the same peak of a mountain or whatever. Uh, here, it's all the different blind men grabbing a different branch of the tree. Um, Taji, at this point, gets news that Jarl has been killed by, in Bora Bola, which is where he was left he left behind. And that night, Taji dreams that he is essentially the entire world and exists throughout all of history. Um, so again, as I, as I suggested in the previous episode, the story gets less and less real as we move on in time and part of that is reflected by the fact that the characters that our hero started with as companions leave at various points and at this point they're gone not only are they gone one Jarl is just unceremoniously killed off screen um, and it's at that same moment that he dreams of this grandiose visions for himself and here's what he writes of the dream I many many souls are in me in my tropical calms when my ship lies tranced on eternity's main speaking one at a time, when all with one voice, an orchestra of many French bugles and horns rising and falling and swaying in golden calls and responses. Sometimes when these Atlantics and Pacifics thus undulate round me, I lie stretched out in the midst, a landlocked Mediterranean, knowing no ebb, no flow. Then again I am dashed in the spray of these sounds, an eagle at the world's end, tossed skyward on the horns of the tempest. So, that's it. That's his dream, part of his dream anyways. So here we get Melville through these chapters is basically establishing a critique of organized religion. Um, and with that done, with religion rightfully denounced as hypocritical, um, the party's ready to go on. Oh, but, but let me stop here. Some of the hypocrisies that are pointed out is, is one is that Oro is a monotheistic deity, it seems. It's, it's the one God. And as Babalanja points out, how strange it is that they worship all these many deities. Um, now, maybe this is just a, a, a poke at the Roman Catholic Church with the saints and all that, but um, I'm not sure if that's quite the point. But basically, he's saying the religion has fallen so far from its origins and it's, that it's not really reflecting that faith anymore. So, um, but there's a few other examples of, of this hypocrisy reflected in here. Um, so anyway, they move on. They go on. Ela cannot be found within established faiths that have corrupted the messages of their founders, or at least particularly not faiths that have corrupted the messages of their founders. And then while at sea, um, 
And again, this is kind of how the novel progresses. They go to an island, then they travel for a while, they talk, they go to an island, they meet some people, they go on go on sea and they talk and it goes kind of goes on that way. But some of these asides are just really nice and fun. And here's a good example of one where they just talk about smoking. They talk about the enjoyment of smoking and the pleasure of smoking. And each character gets kind of their their say about the pleasures of smoking. Uh, here's what Babalanja says. Well said, old man, for like a good wife, a pipe is a friend and companion for life, and whoso weds with a pipe is no longer a bachelor. After many vexations, he may go home to that faithful counselor and ever find it full of kind consolations and suggestions. But not thus with cigars or cigarettes, the acquaintance of the moment, chatted by, with, in high places, wherever they come handy. Their existence so fugitive, uncertain, unsatisfactory. Once ignited, nothing like longevity pertains to them. They never grow old. Why, my lord, the stump of a cigarette is an abomination. The two of them crossed are more of a memento mori than a brace of the thigh bone of the right angles. So pipes are better than cigarettes. And Babalange's view. Um, now Yumi gives his chance. Uh, and now here's an example of a kind of an ongoing theme, uh, which is that Babalanja will talk kind of in kind of pompous language in very exaggerated ways uh, with a lot of sophistry to make a point using his craft. And then Yumi will make a point much more simply and elegantly with um, poetry or song. And so here's his song about smoking. Care is all stuff, puff, puff. To puff is enough, puff, puff. More musky than snuff, and warm is a puff. Puff, puff. Here we sit mid our puffs, like old lords in their ruffs, snug as bears in their muffs. Puff, puff. Then puff, 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 for care is all stuff. Puffed out in a puff, puff, puff. And Babalanja replies to this, Aye, puff away, puff, puff, so we are all born and so die. Puff, puff, my volcanoes. The great sun itself will yet go out in the snuff, and all Mardi smoke out its last wick. So, you know, Babalanja in the end kind of chooses the, the easier path. So it's a fun little aside here, and there's, there's a lot of them in this novel, and I'm not going to touch on all of them. But um, I guess they're the kind of thing that some people think will make this made this novel too long and, and, and too scattered and unclear. But it, it's one thing that I kind of appreciate about it. It'd be a lot more difficult if it was just, you know, if it lacked these kinds of things. It'd, you know. Anyways, the next island they arrive at is Padula. And only two people live here, one of which is the kleptomaniac. He's collecting all sorts of antiquity. Um, Babalanja tells the collector O.O., that's his name, O.O., that focusing on the past prevent any future discoveries. Um, and it was when I read this that I thought of the, the kind of the ongoing criticism of, of Mohi that we see throughout the novel. Mohi is the historian, the chronicler. He gives a lot of useful information to the characters, but he's just so extremely uncreative. Um, he, of course, is old, so it might be he's incapable of thinking outside of the box anymore but more than that it's it's a deeper problem because he can only take what he's heard from others and is, this might be a critique of just the whole craft of, of history 
All right, so they don't spend that much time here. They actually don't spend much time in any of these islands, but they their island hopping continues. They go to various places, and they eventually end up at an island called Pamini. And Mohi describes them as being people who are, in, they live their life entirely as a farce. Um, now these people, they're, they're called the Taparians. And, and here's kind of what we get from Mohi about them. Uh, he, he tells her history, because that's all, that's all he can do. Um, now many moons ago, according to Braidbeer, Braidbeer is another name for Mohi, the Taparians of a certain cluster of islands, seeing themselves hopeless, hopelessly confounded with the plebeian races of mortals, such as artificers, honest men, breadfruit bakers, and the like, seeing in short that nature had denied them every inborn mark of distinction, and furthermore, that their external assumptions were derided by so many in Marty, these self-same Taparians, poor devils resolved to secede from the rabble, form themselves into a community of their own, and conveniently pay that homage to each other, which universal Marty could not be prevailed upon to render to them. Jointly they purchased an island called Pimini, towards the western end of the lagoon, and thither they went, in framing a code of law, amazingly arbitrary considering they themselves were the framers, solemnly took the oath of allegiance to the commonwealth they established. Regarded section by section, this code of law seemed exceedingly trivial, but taken together made a somewhat imposing aggregation of particles. By this code, the minutest things of life were all ordered after a specific fashion. More especially, once dress was legislated upon to the last warp and wolf, all girdles must be so many inches in length, and with such a number of tassels in the front, for a violation of this ordinance, before the face of Almardi, the most dutiful of sons would cut the most affectionate of fathers. Okay, so who are these Taparians? Um, I'm guessing these are uh, an allegory for the utopian socialists or the different utopian communities that were very popular in the early 19th century America. Um, as if you've taken a history class, a U.S. history class, you probably heard a little bit about these communities. You had religious communities such as the Oneida, the Shakers. Uh, you had ones influenced by transcendentalism, such as Brook Farms. You had those influenced by Charles Fourier and the utopian socialist communities. So some were more secular, some were more, more religious, but there was a whole bunch of these. There was hundreds of them throughout the United States. And their goal was to kind of create a perfect society by separating themselves from the rest of the world. Now, Bambalanja, and, and I guess through this we can assume Melville has a critique of these kinds of people. Um, and it's already been established that their life is a farce. Um, the problem with them is that they're ex essentially worldly and try to exist outside of the main currents of Marty. And this is how Babalanja describes them at the end when they decide Ela can't be here and they're going to move on. Since my lord insists upon it then, thus much for the Taparians, though but a thought or two of many in reserve, they ignore the rest of Marty, while they themselves are but a rumor in the Isles of the East, where the business of living and dying goes on with the same uniformity, as if there was no Taparians in existence. They think themselves Marty in full, whereas by the mass they are they are started stared at as prodigies, exceptions to the law, ordaining that no Marty shall undertake to live unless he set out with at least the average quantity of brains. 
For these Taparians have no brains. In lieu, they carry in one corner of their craniums a drop or two of attar of roses, charily used, their supply being small. They are the victims of, one in, of two incurable maladies, stone in the heart and ossification in the head. They are full of fripperies, fropperies, and finesses, not knowing that nature should not be the model of art. Yet they might appear less silly than we do, where they contend to be the plain idiots, which at the bottom they are. For there be grains of sense in a simpleton, so long as he be natural. But what can be expected of them? They are irreclaimable taparians. Not so much fools of, by contrivance of their own, as by an express though inscrutable decree of Oros. For one, my lord, I cannot abide them. Um, so, that's the Taparians. Um, and I'm getting a sense that these are supposed to be these utopian idealists who have this idea of kind of separating themselves off, uh, still being Americans, but still trying to be somewhat different, not playing by the rules of, of the society, but then imposing their own artificial rules on the way of living. So it seems pretty clear that Melville has some strong critique of this overly regimented and kind of rule-based living that he saw being enacted in the in the utopian communities. Um, all right. So um, so after sailing for a while, well, they leave that the the, the Taparian island. And those guys and they sail for a while and they start to come to really essential philosophical discussion of of the book which is this debate over free will versus determinism and, and this is kind of a, a religious debate that was going on at the time in the in the united states you, you of course had the classical puritan view of salvation which was based on the calvinist idea of predestination Right, that before God created the universe, He had already chosen who would be the saved, um, and the best you could do is is show from the way you lived your life that you were one of those uh, elect. Um, and then, with the rise of democracy and the the Great Awakenings, especially the Second Great Awakening, which was active during the time Melville lived, there's a lot more emphasis on on free will and the ability to choose Christ and come to Christ on 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 your own terms. Um, and actually be redeemed, right? So salvation, you know, life could be perfected even. Society could even be improved if, if not perfected through through these various reforms. Now that's kind of what was going on with those utopian communities was this belief that through a certain way of living, a certain set of rules, a certain cooperativeness, setting themselves off from the like the worst parts of American society, they could make a, a better life. Um, anyway, so it's kind of like, are we doomed? You know, is everything decided for us or do we have this free will? And, you know, in a sense, if determinism is true, it it's, seems democracy might be suspect. Um, so Babylon just sets up this debate uh, and and comes down essentially on the side of determinism due to the power of Oro. So he starts with this almost Calvinist position, or maybe it's a pantheistic um, position. Um, so here's Babalanja. <clears throat> For it, for if that be absolutely so, Oro is not merely a universal onlooker, but occupies and fills all space, and no vacancy is left for any being or anything but Oro. Perhaps Oro is in all things, and himself is all things, the old time old creed. But since evil abounds, and Oro is all things, 
then he cannot be perfectly good. Wherefore, Oros, omnipresence and moral perfection seem incompatible. Furthermore, my lord, those orthodox systems which describe to Oro almighty and universal attributes every way, those systems, I say, destroy all intellectual individualities, but Oro and resolve the universe into him. So this is the argument for determinism that Babalanja is presenting to, to Medea. During this debate, we're given just yet another example of how utterly incompetent Moe is to really participate in anything philosophical or creative. At the end of the discussion, after this long dissertation on on the power of Oru and, and how that necessitates the lack of free will, Mohi says this, Your Highness, this whole discourse seems to have grown out of the subject of necessity and free will. Now, when a boy, I recollect hearing a sage say that these things were reconcilable. And then Medea replies, Ah, what do you say to that, Babalanja? I mean, it's really kind of silly. It's like you get this long philosophic argument. All Moe can say is, I once heard from a guy that, you know, free will and the power of omnipotence of God are reconcilable facts. Um, so, it, you know, as, as much as Babalanja is a flawed character, at least, you know, he realizes the limit of, of history as a foundation for kind of philosophical conversations. Uh, he can add a lot when talking about what a society is or what they believe or what they're like, but when it comes to these, he, he really can't really contribute too much to the conversation. Um, well, anyways, they keep going, and the next island they come to is Duranda. It's a society devoted to violence and public amusement. It's essentially the Roman Empire. Um, we're told very early on that this land is divided up into the eastern and western parts with two separate kings and two separate kind of centers of power. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's, it's Rome. It's ancient Rome. The party observes these, these public games, uh, and there's a series of different con con competitions and contests. But then they flee the island after they learn that they're still being pursued by the Avengers and the handmaidens of, of, of Hosha. So this distant threat of these pursuers is still um, there, and they can't yet go. Um, they take, they take part in another philosophical discussion after leaving Duranda. This time, Bob Belanja despairs over the power of law to affect human beings. And then this is a really fascinating little passage here where he says, My lord, at bottom, men wear no bonds that other men can strike off and have no immunities to which other men can deprive them. Tell a good man that he's free to commit murder. Will he murder? Tell the murderer that at the peril of his soul he in indulges in murderous thoughts. What will make him a saint? Now, this is kind of the social parallel of the conversation about free will we, we got earlier. If our natures, if, if what happens to us, our upbringing, you know, and, and just our experiences are out of our hands, they're in the hands of God, then what's the point of really punishing people? So, so social laws can't really reform them. And you know, here's a little bit of a stab, I think, at the reformers of the 19th century who are obsessed with this idea that through temperance, through education, through various other reform efforts, society could be perfected or at the very least improved significantly. You know, the real point here, again, is free will. Um, Babalanja compares himself to a blind man, unable to do anything about the forces pushing on him and against him. Um, so next they arrive at the island of Dominora. 
ruled by a King Bello. And this is a pretty direct allegory for Britain. It's it's not even hidden. So, you know, as I, as I said before, the allegories become more and more clear as you get deeper into the, the story. Bello is presented as a warmonger who rules as an absolute monarch. He has a very large navy and he claims many territories around the region, including, including its former possession, Vivencia, which is essentially the United States. And, and they'll, in the final episode, we'll look at their visit to Vivencia. They see the glory of the Empire of Dominora. They see its powerful fleet. But of course, here, like everywhere else, they fail to locate Ila. Now, it's time to at least mention or set up the historical context for the writing of Mardi. Um, it's Melville's third novel, of course. It's um, the follow-up to two quite realistic uh, examples of sea fiction based really on Melville's own experiences in the Pacific. And that's sort of how Mardi begins. Um, but then it critically shifts into this mythological and allegorical story. Um, now, it was written, it was be, Melville began writing in 1847. He did not complete it until 1848 or maybe 1849 when it was published. Now, the revolutions of 1848, the, the European-wide uprisings motivated by nationalism, republicanism, democracy, and, and even to a degree communism. Of course, 1948 was the year the Communist Manifesto was written. There's no evidence here that Melville was aware of the Communist Manifesto, but certainly he was aware of the revolutions of 1848. Uh, the question of liberty and the future of monarchy in Europe must have been firm in Melville's mind, especially when he wrote the section on his allegorical Europe. It is perhaps possible that Melville was responding to news of the revolutions of 1848 by shifting his stories to a world that we lived in, and I think that may be a reason we get more concrete um, allegories. Well, that will do it for this episode. Um, in my final episode on Marty, I'll finish up with Melville's tour of the allegorical equivalents of Europe and America. This will bring us to the climax of the novel, the fate of our characters, and his conclusion, such as it is. It's, it's not a very satisfying um, conclusion. I mean, nothing's really wrapped up very firmly. But anyways, such as there is a conclusion, we'll get to it. Well, thanks for listening to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, please contact me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your email, hear your comments, hear your suggestions for future episodes. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and share it on iTunes. And I will be back in 100 Pages for the conclusion of Marty. I'm a pretty senorita waiting for me. Sweet bro.